9.06 on this Tuesday morning. It's International Women's Day. Are you observing it? Is it a special day for you? Is it a unique day? Did you just go... We want to hear from you. Text lines wide open to 630-630. In just a second, we're going to introduce you to three University of Alberta law students. They're three of a group of five that maintain a, a blog under the alias Ms. Suffragette. We're going to talk to Vanessa Corzan and Larry Kornhoff and Kate Andrus about what International Women's Day means to them. And we'll take a look back on the women's suffrage movement in, in Canada, and we'll get their take on some of the contemporary issues, some of the issues in 2016 that maybe you should be thinking about today. But, of course, this falls back to you. Pictured as a tennis match. The ball will be back in your court as we're talking to these ladies, and we want to know what you're focusing on today. If anything, in the 10 o'clock hour, do you remember when I read a text from a listener by the name of Brad about a week ago? You may have heard me talking to Bruce Bowie about it. Brad was uh, chiming in when we were talking about press access at the Alberta legislature. Brad said, my fiance is a journalist for the Kiev Post in Ukraine. And a lot of the people that she interviews over there still used to Soviet-era media access. That's her battle. So she's in disbelief when she looks back to Alberta and sees that journalists are being denied access to politicians. And we were back in touch with Brad, and we said, wait, your fiancé's in Kiev, and you're in Edmonton, and how did this happen? And he started telling us his love story, and all of a sudden we went, we have to get both of you on the show. So Brad's going to join me in studio at 10 o'clock. We're going to put a call into Elena Goncharova in Kiev, and the three of us are going to have a little roundtable. We'll get her take as a journalist in Kiev on what's going on in Ukraine. And, of course, there's a little bit of kind of a, a love story element to it, too. We won't ignore that. March is National Nutrition Month. Emily Mardell is a registered dietitian. She'll be in giving us a few things to think about taking your questions as well after 11 o'clock. Let's not keep our lead-off guests waiting, though. If you check out ualbertalaw.typepad.com, ualbertalaw.typepad.com, you'll find the Ms. Suffragette blog. Kate Andrus, Larry Kornhoff, and Vanessa Korzen are three of the five contributors. Good morning to the three of you. Good morning. Good morning. Do I say happy International Women's Day? Absolutely. Is that That's an yeah. appropriate yes. greeting to the show, I think, isn't it? Uh, Vanessa, why Ms. Suffragette? Why don't we kick off there? What's the blog all about? What's with the name? So uh, we're part of the law and social media class, which is an innovative style of experiential learning, which is used at our law school. It was developed by the vice dean um, of our law school, Moin Yaya, and we're really fortunate to have him as a prof, as a prof and a dean at the law school. Um, without him, it really wouldn't have been possible. Um, there aren't really any other law schools that we know of that do this kind of learning, and we're really fortunate to have been handpicked to be part of the project. Um, essentially, we use social media platforms to generate critical analysis and discussion of legal issues, and we submit daily blog posts related to a particular topic. And so because this year is the centennial of women's suffrage in three of the provinces, um, the women's suffrage movement is really the, the focus this semester. Your contributors to the blog have, have covered a, uh, just an absolute ton of topics. You talk about an inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women. I saw that there's an interview there posted with Canada's first and only female uh, Prime Minister, Kim Campbell. Of course, you talk about uh, violence against women. You talk about a court case in El Salvador. There, there, there's a lot going on. Larry, what dictates what's covered here? What dictates your focus? What dictates what you're paying attention to and what you're analyzing? Well, we brainstormed ideas at the beginning of the semester. Uh, we sort of try and run uh, 
a theme for each week. Because there are five of us in the group, we try to average one blog per person per week, but uh, we trade off when when other um, commitments arise. Um, so basically it's just a lot of organic brainstorming, whatever comes up for us. And of course on the uh, date of, what was it, Manitoba's date? on January 28th. Uh, January 28th, when, when it was the actual uh, anniversary of Manitoba's um, <coughs> legal reform giving women the mo vote. We blogged about that and then we will for March 14th yes. for yep. Saskatchewan. And now unfortunately we'll be finished the semester before Alberta's anniversary in April. Doesn't mean you can't get together and celebrate it, I exactly. suppose. Absolutely. Well, I mean, on a day like this, you know, people might be asking a pretty basic question, but I think it's an important and obvious one to ask, Kate, and that is what does International Women's Day mean to you or why is it important to you? Well, as a law student and woman blogging on the women's suffrage movement in Canada, I think International Women's Day is very important and extremely relevant to this day. Uh, the roots of International Women's Day were, were largely in women demanding the vote, which we did not have a hundred years ago. Uh, for example, in 1908 in New York City, women marched demanding for, first of all, to attain the vote and also for better working conditions. They were working extremely long hours in difficult jobs and not receiving equivalent pay to men. So they were trying to demand pay more in line with those of the, their male counterparts. So that's kind of the origin of International Women's Day. It was declared International Women's Day in 1910, so we've been celebrating this day for just over 100 years uh, 100 years now, and it's about discussing gender parity, and it's a day for women to press for their demands. So it's fantastic that, we're, that we've had the vote for nearly 100 years in, in Canada, but um, it's an opportunity to think, well, where is there gender disparity still in our society? What are the demands to press for? And uh, having the vote, although we've had it for 100 years in Canada, there are other countries where it's been more recent. And, and there are certainly different places all around the world where there's gender disparity to a much larger degree than in Canada. So, so today, an opportunity, obviously, to look within our own national borders, but to look internationally as well. And, mm -hmm. and these could be two drastically different conversations about, you know, how far have we come? What are we celebrating today? And then what are we still aiming to achieve? What do we identify? I mean, you look at some parts of the world, there are some still some pretty basic human rights. Yes. We talk about a right to education or we, we see some genital mutilation. Mm -hmm. We see, you know, child brides. I mean, some of the issues, uh, you know, sex, slavery, child trafficking. I mean, geez, the list goes on and it, and it becomes heavier and heavier. Obviously important to take a look at lists like that. What do we, right here in Canada right now, uh, we talk about what we can celebrate. What do we still have yet to achieve? Well, uh, coincidentally, on my way, over here this morning, I, I uh, picked up a copy of the Metro, and uh, a hot topic these days is the gender wage gap, which is a, a term that sort of never seems to go away. Um, recently, the statistics uh, Statistics Canada said that whereas the gender wage gap was 77 cents on the dollar for women compared to men, it's now about 72 or 73 cents. <laughs> so clearly we have some work to do. And it's it's sometimes a, a difficult concept to grasp and to understand exactly where it affects people. Um, so I'll just read a little bit from the Metro article. Um, 
differences in salaries for typically female versus typically male jobs are blamed. So we, we look at uh, uh, doctors versus nurses, right? Or we look at uh, secretaries versus business executives. Uh, p- jobs where people, we, what we sometimes uh, term pink jobs, blue jobs, or pink collar. Pink collar. Pink collar. collar. Right. Uh, what else? Uh, but women are also more likely to work low-wage jobs, experience poverty, and to make less than men in their fields. For example, they cite professors, um, men outnumber women two to one in uh, in a professor role. So it's not very clear what can be done, but it is clear that uh, that we're recognizing there are disparities still. Mm-hmm. And I think to add to that, I know you had Dr. Stasia on about five days ago or last week, and she talked about the wage gap. And yeah, she stirred up a hornet's yeah. nest. <laughs> wow. And, and she mentioned that Alberta has the worst or is the worst off in the wage gap issue, I guess, and not just that women are paid less, but they're also promoted less. Mm-hmm. You know, there are cynics. And people people don't believe that, that things like a gender wage gap exists, and, and you'll bring others in, like Dr. Stasia, who you mentioned, and they'll say, uh, well, it does. Mm-hmm. You know, And so there, there seems to be like people are hitting a concrete wall with each other. Are, are there issues that you perceive there is no conversation or a lack of conversation around that you find to be somewhat discouraging here in Canada? Do you take a look at an issue that, that's affecting women and go, hey, uh, like it's 2016. This is something we should be talking about or, or something we should have moved past already? Absolutely. Uh, being women in law, we think about these issues all the time because uh, women in law account for approximately 50% uh, compared to men. Um, That's a good thing then, right? It's a great thing. It's it's an equal thing when you have... um, people representing the population as it is. Of course, we do have uh, a ways to go in law school with uh, people from diverse backgrounds. But uh, women in the early stages of their legal careers account for close to 50%. But women in uh, later years in law firms account for a very small percentage of, of lawyers. And uh, women in law school versus women as lawyers are uh, it's a drastic difference what about uh, judges what about on the bench actually I just noticed the statistic statistic on that today it's not the worst it's about 63 percent men per uh, in Canada and there are several very notable actually tonight I'll be joining some judges for dinner I'm very excited uh, women judges for dinner on on International Women's Day um, it's about 63%, and it's not the worst, but I have read that criminal female criminal lawyers find it difficult to stay in their field. They find it difficult to advance in their field, and they find it difficult to get respect from their colleagues, their opponents, and judges. And I, I think a lot of that has to do with... Well, the law itself, there's nothing really preventing women from, from entering the workforce, whereas in previous eras, there's been a lot of discriminatory legislation. However, societal attitudes haven't really caught up. Uh, I think we talk a lot about different statistics and, you know, women are, are outnumbered in uh, elected positions and, and outnumbered in these in these different professions. Uh, no one, a lot of people tend to justify this with, you know, women take maternity leave. Women don't want as demanding jobs because they want to stay home with their children. Uh, this and that, or women have less working years because of the maternity leave, therefore they're not as qualified for for promotion. But these beliefs in and of themselves reflect that we don't consider men and women equally. And I think men are 
men are really the, the stereotype that a, a man's sort of expected not to take paternity leave, that's harmful to men as well. So these different beliefs of a woman's role and a man's role, I think that's what feeds into the differences that you see in men and women in the workforce, and, and that's something that's not discussed as much. We've talked about paternity leave a whole bunch on this show in the in the last week or so leading up to today, mm-hmm. and it's interesting as well to, you know, you, you'll hear a lot of people suggest, and I think there's something to it, despite the fact that this is International Women's Day, this is a conversation, uh, this is a day where conversation needs to uh, focus squarely on two genders. Uh, we need to talk about women and men uh, both playing a role in the conversation. I'm going to fit in a quick break. When we come back with uh, Vanessa Corza and Larry Kornhoff and Kate Andrus, I want to get to some of their expertise via study on legal issues here in Canada. A listener says, do they dare go after Islam? Well, why don't we ask them about Sharia law, how it impacts women's testimony when it comes to sexual assault? Why don't we ask about the public's reaction to the Gian Gomeshi trial and what that says about our society through the eyes and observations of these legal students, these law students? Why don't we get into video games, talk about how women are represented there, talk about the community You've heard about Gamergate. Should we be talking about that on International Women's Day? If you have a question, we'd love to hear from you now. You can text it in to 630-630. More with uh, three of the authors behind the University of Alberta law blog, Ms. Suffragette, right after this. It's International Women's Day 923. Our guests here in studio, University of Alberta law students, Vanessa Kors and Larry Kornhoff and Kate Andrus. They blog uh, under the alias Ms. Suffragette at ualbertalaw.typepad.com. A listener here, as I mentioned, chimed in wondering if you dare go after Islam on a day like this. Larry, you recently blogged on Sharia law and the impact uh, that it has on women's testimony in court. Are there particular religions, Islamic included that are in the crosshairs or that deserve to be examined, criticized on a day like this? Well, I think that uh, many religions tend to hold fast to older traditions and it's it's more difficult for change to be affected. For example, um, the, in, the Vatican City is the only state that still does not allow women to vote because in order to vote, you have to be a priest and of course women can't be priests. Yeah. Only cardinals are Only able to cardinals. exercise the vote in, Vati- in Vatican in City. Vatican That's City. the last country where women haven't received the vote to this day. To this day. And uh, Sharia law specifically um, is different from our legal system because quite specifically, women must have a second voice, literally, to testify. So if she tells a story, another person another woman usually needs to tell the same story to corroborate or to counter the evidence told by a man in court just one man just one man and this is not every single court in a country that uses trial law but some countries who tend to use it the system will uh, have a separate court system for issues like domestic violence or sexual assault and curiously curiously coincidentally that is the area in our society in our legal culture where women are more affected mm-hmm. probably the most high-profile sexual assault trial I think it's a safe statement to say in recent memory in Canada is is that of Jean Gomeshi uh, obviously ongoing Kate you blogged about that what is the public's reaction to the Gomeshi trial say about our society? Well, we just thought it was very interesting that that there was a lot of hostility towards the complainants in the Gian Gomeshi trial. Uh, Some of them did 
rightfully so have their credibility challenged. They they made inconsistent statements. They said untrue things on the stand. Uh, but that wasn't true across all of the witnesses. And yet society had this really negative reaction, or, or there was a big divide. A lot of people that were 100% uh, in support of the complainants, others that w immediately said these women are lying, we should not be believing them. And it seemed to be that it was because these women didn't respond as society expects victims to respond. They were not damsels in distress that cried and immediately ran to police. In fact, the women on the stand had said, you know, they didn't, they didn't know they could report these things. So the Gian Gameshi trial, I think, really demonstrates uh, if, I mean, a hot, hot button word, but it demonstrates the presence of rape culture in our society. People don't understand, um, people aren't actually taught about consent in, in sexual education curriculum in Canada, other than in the province of Ontario, which just And that's been very controversial. Yes. The introduction of that, the mm -hmm. idea of consent uh, to curriculum. So we are actually uh, implementing the LEAF, Legal Education, uh, Women's Legal Education Access Fund, is initiating a similar program in Alberta, which is to come shortly. But just back to the Gian Gomeshi trial. So uh, part of the reason that the, uh, the witnesses were made to look so inconsistent is when you have a trial, the witness by law, the structure of the, civil, of the criminal proceeding, the witness can have his or her credibility challenged to n in any degree, whereas an accused may not have his or her credibility put on trial to the extent that a witness can, to the extent of a witness. So in issues of assault, sexual assault or regular assault, it becomes very dif difficult because one person is coming up to the stand saying, this happened to me, and the defense lawyer is saying, yeah, but did it really? Did it really? And then the accused comes up and says, this doesn't happen, and the prosecutor can't really say, I think you're lying. You can't say that to an accused. So it, it manifests itself in a gender disparate way simply because sexual assault in our society tends to happen from men against women. Not that it can't go the other way. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it does happen, and that is a concern for men who feel uncomfortable reporting it. Yeah. It's been interesting to, to many of the commentators, and, and, and then even just, I mean, you know, everybody's a commentator these days with Twitter and Facebook and everything else have suggested that one, one of the, uh, and, and I, this word seems a little too benign, but one of the unfortunate elements of a, of a trial like Gomeshi's, uh, and, and I've got to be, I suppose, careful when I'm grouping in different case studies or different examples here, but I would also reference those that have accused uh, comedian Bill Cosby of sexual assault through the years. Uh, one of the unfortunate elements of, of, of the way that things can play out in the public forum is that future alleged victims of assault may hesitate to come forward after they see the public battering uh, that some women have taken. Is, is that, you're all, I mean, you're sitting here nodding your heads. Is, is that something that, that you believe could actually manifest itself? Absolutely. And it's because if, if women, if a victim doesn't present as the typical expected victim who immediately flees the attacker, uh, doesn't return, doesn't communicate no. with him in the future, screams right. and resists to her very best, then people just don't really believe that, that the alleged offense occurred. And to be completely disempowered by that act and to then have society question whether or not the offense occurred, 
I can I can absolutely see why women wouldn't want to come forward. Do you three need to get to a law class in the next little bit? No. no. Can I keep you here a little bit over time? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, because, um, Vanessa, you, you blogged about representation of women in video games. I'd really like to hear your take on that, and I think that Chad Nation would probably want to chime in on that as well. Uh, why don't we focus on uh, Edmontonian Nellie McClung as well, who probably deserves a shout-out today. I know that, that you've focused on, on her legacy. Plus, I want to get to the text line. Some great comments. Uh, some people are curious about the racial diversity of your group. I think that's worth touching on as well. Uh, more from Ched Nation and more from the bloggers behind Ms. Suffragette right after this newscast. Three of the bloggers behind Ms. Suffragette, which you can find at ualbertalaw.typepad. Dot com joining us here in studio on this International Women's Day. Vanessa Corzan, Larry Kornhoff, and Kate Andrus, thanks for hanging tight through the break. Uh, Want to get to some of the questions, some of the comments and observations that have been submitted on the text line. I've taken you through a few of them uh, through this commercial break. A listener wanted me to ask you about racial diversity within your group, and we could even expand that to your observations at the University of Alberta Law School or even on campus at the U of A. Is that a conversation that should be occurring on on International Women's Day? Absolutely. I think any anywhere that disparity exists, it's we, we should be talking about it at any and every opportunity. Do you notice a disparity? I do. I do. I showed up at law school in first year. I'm now in second year. I came from Vancouver, which is in some respects a bit more diverse than Edmonton in different ways, of course. So I showed up at first year law at the U of A and I was like, why is everyone white? <laughs> and um, there are some people who are not of Western European heritage, but of course it's difficult for uh, immigrants with uh, as English as a second language to write the LSAT and to effectively um, do legal exercises that a person who's a natural English speaker can do easily. So the question you, you had come in asked what the racial is, diversity is of our group. So there are, we are five members, we are five women, we're all of Western European heritage. I'm the only one who was not born in Alberta. I was born in South Africa in Johannesburg and my family um, came from several Western European countries, not very relevant. But. So how do you impact this type of thing? I mean, let me let me ask it uh, through the words of Craig, who's listening in. Uh, Craig's talking about a different context, but the same sort of idea, says regarding discrepancies in the business world uh, with regards to rate of pay, the number of CEOs that would be men or women, etc. Craig asks, how do we create an environment where women have more opportunities to even out those discrepancies. Vanessa, what would you say? I guess just through, like what Dr. Stacia said, just changing our culture and just uh, changing expectations, I guess. It's a multi-part solution. And part of International Women's Day is just really empowerment through education and just giving women education and educating more than just women, but educating about women's rights, women's suffrage, that kind of thing. You wrote uh, recently on Nellie McClung, mm -hmm. who I know is, uh, when it comes to Edmontonians that, that have uh, established legacies, she'd be right up there near the top mm -hmm. of the list. What did you uh, find most notable about Nellie McClung? Um, well, she started in Man or sorry, Saskatchewan. Yep, Manitoba, Saskatchewan. She moved across, so she wasn't in Alberta the entire time. But Alberta, uh, Manitoba, and Saskatchewan, his our history as a group is really unique. The Western provinces were among the first to give women the right to vote. So again, be being International Women's Day, I think it's important to recognize um, not only women's rights where we're still lacking and need need some 
some furtherance, but I guess um, where, like, where we've come from so far and, and how far we've come. And in the Western provinces, the fact that we were among the first to give women the right to vote is really something that we should be proud of. And Nellie McClung was, was one of those key individuals out of the famous five that, that really helped women's suffrage along. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in addition to being a notable Edmontonian suffragist, she was also one of the five members of the person's case. So for for the listeners out there that don't know, women were not considered persons under Canada's constitution until 1929. So Nellie McClung, along with four other women, challenged that legislation and even, or challenged the constitution, and uh, even the Supreme Court of Canada at that time upheld and said, no, women, women are not persons under this law, but it was, uh, it was appealed to the Privy Council, who Acknowledged in Britain, yes. I'm picturing, you know, young kids or or, or teenagers that are old enough to understand what you just said, but too young to realize that that's the case. Going, what? Mm -hmm. Like less than a hundred years ago, women weren't considered persons. Like what? Going back to the racial diversity, cultural diversity issue. uh, Let's keep in mind that only white women. uh, Of British heritage or Western Canadian, Western European heritage, received the vote in the in, in the beginning because same thing people of particular backgrounds were not considered persons under the person's case either listener here has just said thank you by the way for the honest reply from the three of you regarding the lack of racial diversity see candor always wins honesty always wins and i'm so glad we got that question because when i took some gender studies classes in in my undergrad i thought okay i'm going to learn about women's history i'm going to learn about what what applies to women but then i learned about so many other movements. I mean, I had to study a bit of the civil rights movement in the U.S. in order to understand second wave feminism in the 60s and 70s. I learned so much about the indigenous uh, women's movement in Canada, but also what issues affect indigenous people as uh, as a whole. And I guess the point is, with all the learning, we've got to find a way to, to impact change in areas that we've identified require that change as well. You know, I mean, it's, it's interesting. As soon as I said Gamergate, as soon as I brought up video games, the text line kind of lit up. Somebody here just said, you know, Come on, this is a bunch of BS. Uh, you know, uh, Warcraft is the biggest game in the world. 10 million subscribers. You know, you can be male or female. It doesn't matter. Uh, Vanessa, you took a look at this on a blog post. How does sexism, or, or even more topically today, how does International Women's Day relate to gaming? Um, well, in the post, I talked about the imbalance of gender distribution of characters. So um, the roles which women are put in in a lot of video games is really disappointing. So um, typically women, I mean, other than, I guess, Warcraft, <laughs> that's, a, that's a poor example. But like the damsel in distress role, women as background characters, and then women as rewards are pretty much the most frequently, uh, the frequent roles that women are put in. So if you look back to the, some of the oldest video games like Super Mario World, um, Princess Peach is a damsel in distress who has to be saved. And maybe you're thinking, oh, what about Zelda? Again, damsel in distress has to be saved. All of the, the new games, um, Grand Theft Autos are pretty pretty bad for this. Um, pretty much anything else. Gears of War, Dishonored, Outlaws, Dante's Inferno. But when we think War. about Warcraft, let's talk about the, dis- the, the lack of representation in, in other, fa- uh, other factors. Like, you told me about a story when you went to a LAN party... Oh yeah, yeah. So if you, even at gaming events, so if you uh, Fragapalooza, I don't know if they still have it, but I used to attend that gaming event, and there's maybe 500 people there, and I would say maybe 10 or less are female. And typically, any female that goes to those events, or at least did in that in the time when I was 
attending those. Um, any female that would go is put in as a booth babe or would have to give out free free items, that kind of thing, and swag instead of just being allowed to game or they were someone's girlfriend. You know, they weren't really invited into that atmosphere. It wasn't a, a women's sphere. It was a man-only sphere. These are the types of, uh, of issues that we had hoped to cover today, and, and I want to thank the three of you for being here with us. Of course, you've gone uh, further in depth on a lot of what we've talked about and more on your blog, and I'd like to encourage people to check it out, ualbertalaw.typepad.com. I want to thank the three of you for making time out of your day to join us here in studio. Vanessa Corza and Larry Kornhoff and Kate Andrus, law students at the University of Alberta. You've uh, enriched our day to be sure. Thanks for spending some time here at CHED. Thanks for having thank us. Thank you. Thanks so much. When we come back, you may have heard Erin uh, Andrews, of course, the Dancing with the Stars co-host. You've seen her on the sidelines, a sports reporter, well-known broadcaster in the United States, awarded $55 million following an incident where she was videotaped naked, obviously, without permission when she was staying at a Nashville hotel back in 2008. We're going to talk to a criminal trial lawyer, Shannon Prithipal, for her take on exactly what this verdict means. That's coming up next, right here on 630 Chad. Big news yesterday, a jury awarding Fox Sports reporter, uh, Dancing with the Stars co-host, Aaron Andrews, $55 million in a lawsuit against a stalker who had uh, secured a hotel room next to her in Nashville and secretly recorded a nude video. Uh, the jury found that the hotel companies involved, as well as the stalker, Michael David Barrett, shared in the blame... Aaron Andrews had sought $75 million, says that following the public release of this video, she's been humiliated. She's been shamed, suffers from depression. She says, every day of my life, I get a tweet or somebody makes a comment or somebody sends me a video to my Twitter or screams at me from the stands. I feel so embarrassed. I'm so ashamed. Michael Barrett pleaded guilty to stalking Andrews, to altering hotel room peepholes, to taking nude videos, sentenced to two and a half years in prison. Attorneys for the hotel companies suggested that the rise in Aaron Andrews' career following the release of this nude video showed she did not suffer severe and permanent distress. What are we to make of this story? Well, it's my uh, pleasure to welcome to the program a, a criminal trial lawyer, uh, Shannon Prithipal, a partner at Gun Law Group here in Edmonton. Shannon, good morning to you. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Good morning, Ryan. What do you make of this case? Uh, it's an unusual case, I think. Uh, one that I, we might actually be seeing a bit more played out in the media, considering that privacy issues, I think, are just going to need rejigging in this new age of social media where anybody can take a picture of, or a video at any time and then all of a sudden upload it and there it is out in the, in, in the universe. So uh, very, very interesting. Uh, I think what's striking about it, of course, is the uh, enormous payout for most people. $55 million is incredibly high. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Does that have something to do, Shannon, with the fact that this is stateside and, and, and we don't see necessarily verdicts like this here in Canada? I think so, Ryan. I think that here in Canada, a payout like that would be very unusual. Um, you know, I was talking to some friends of mine, and they suggested perhaps tort of breach of privacy would be the way one would uh, pursue this kind of issue in Canada, and that's a fairly new tort in Canada, and we don't generally see payouts like that uh, here. So 
I think that's more a, a states thing rather than a Canadian thing. Hmm. Shannon, how does, a, in, in your experience uh, in trial when it comes to sentencing, or in this case when it comes to damages that are awarded, how, how do you put a price, how does a court or a jury, how does a judge put a price on humiliation or shaming or, 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 or perhaps a, a later onset of depression as a result of an offense? That is very difficult, uh, and it's a good question because um, it goes to damages in a civil suit or it goes to potential remedies in a criminal proceeding. And so in uh, criminal proceedings, for example, when we get to a point where we say, for example, a Section 7 charter breach has occurred, and that's Section 7 is your right to be to life, liberty, and security of the person and the right to not be deprived thereof except in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice. That includes things like um, anything that goes to your bodily integrity, your intimacy, your privacy. Um, And so when you get to a remedy, that's where we look at what was the impact of the charter breaching conduct on you as a person. Um, Now, when you get into civil suits, it becomes more difficult because when in criminal matters we're looking at stays of proceedings or exclusion of evidence as possible remedies, But as you mentioned, in civil proceedings, we're looking at dollar figures, and it is really difficult to put a dollar figure on shame, Hmm. on embarrassment. Um, So one normally, as I think the lawyers for the hotels did in this case, uh, they look at, well, how did your business go after that? And as they noted, she seemed to do quite well after, (laughs) after all of this and didn't seem to suffer any monetary damages. So the the courts really did have to look at what amount of damage are you going to attribute to um, discomfort. Yeah, we were we were talking about this last night. The the fact that the 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 legal representation for the hotel argued that her career took off after this, wondering aloud as uh, those not in the legal profession whether or not that was out of line. I've got to fit in a quick break. When we come back, that's what we'll ask Shannon Prithipal. Was that uh, an out of line argument from the hotel's lawyers? And what are the chances that Aaron Andrews actually collects any of this judgment? More with Shannon Prithipal, a criminal trial lawyer on the story of Aaron Andrews, that verdict, $55 million awarded yesterday. We'll be right back. Yesterday, Davidson County Circuit Court Judge Hamilton Gaydon, uh, on Friday rather, found a stalker Michael David Barrett uh, at fault when it came to the videotaping of Fox Sports reporter Aaron Andrews, left it up to jurors to decide if hotel owner West End Hotel Partners and the former operator, Windsor Capital Group, should share responsibility. Their lawyers, the lawyers for the hotels, arguing that the rise in Aaron Andrews' career shows that she did not suffer severe and permanent distress. Uh, Shannon Prithipal, a criminal trial lawyer, joining us. Shannon, thanks for holding the line. Were the the lawyers out of line in making that argument, or is is it all fair game in a court of law? Uh, No, the lawyers were not out of line in making that argument. That's exactly what they should argue. Um, They have to look at uh, what the economic impact on Ms. Andrews was after the uh, the video went onto the internet and so um, they were certainly correct in making the argument they just didn't succeed <laughs> but um, looking at where the jury went they certainly weren't swayed by the argument that just because her career seemed to go well she didn't suffer damage and so they were clearly attributing uh, a monetary value to her emotional distress and where this causes me discomfort 
is sort of in parallels that I see with um, basically the squeaky wheel gets the oil kind of principle. We have victim impact statements in court where if people make an emotional plea, um, you know, that can sometimes sway in some ways the, the outcome of a case. If we have very vocal um, people who are uh, advocating on behalf of someone who has suffered a loss, either a financial or emotional loss or has been hurt or injured, um, those, those cases, I think, tend to have more severe penalties than those where the victim's families are quiet. Mm. Shannon, I just have like 20 seconds left. I'm sorry to cut you off. What are the chances that Aaron Andrews actually sees any of this $55 million judgment? Well, I think the chance that she could see 49% of it is pretty good. From the hotels? Exactly. Um, But from Mr. Barrett, who's in custody for two and a half years, I don't think she's going to see a lot from him. Yeah. Would it be a simple matter of declaring bankruptcy for him? Probably. Okay. Yeah, Shannon, that's very cool. really appreciate your time today. You're welcome. Shannon Thanks, Prithipal, you bet. A partner at Gun Law Group, a criminal trial lawyer. Really appreciate your time on that. You can let me know what you think. Many of you already are. To the text line at 630-630. When we come back here in studio, a love story across the continents. I can't wait for it.